Hey everyone, welcome back. It's been a while since we've done a live stream right before the market opens. So let's get into uh, what's going on this week. Uh, first, we're going to start with, uh, throughout the video, we'll cover obviously markets, Fed, vaccines exposed by the Wall Street Journal. That was wild. We'll talk about that. Shooting in California, chat GBT, crypto, debt ceiling, real estate, and more. Uh, but first, I think it's useful to do a little catalyst check. So uh, we've got some earnings this week. We've got uh, Synchrony and Logitech today, tomorrow, Johnson Johnson, Verizon, Lockheed, uh, GE, Raytheon, DR Horton, Microsoft, Texas Instruments. Those are all tomorrow. Wednesday, of course, Tesla, Boeing, AT&T, IBM, Thursday, American Air, MasterCard, JetBlue, Intel, and Visa. Uh, actually, I need to double check if Visa is Thursday. But either way massive reports coming out this week. And personally, I think a lot of markets are pretty tentative about what's actually going to end up happening with earnings as potentially a signal of an earnings bottom or has maybe that earnings bottom already come in Q3 or Q2 of last year. So there'll be a lot of comparing of Q4 to the prior quarters. Now, that's uh, really important because Goldman Sachs and, and many on Wall Street thinks that the stock market ends up bottoming about six to nine months before the bottom in uh, uh, earnings. So if the bottom in earnings is now, uh, then then does that mean the, the stock market has already bottomed? Uh, who knows? Uh, if, if we're on a trend towards bottoming and earnings actually bottom in Q1, does that mean maybe October-ish was closer to the bottom? And uh, I think given that we're, uh, we're off, off some of the lows now, I think everyone's hoping the bottom is behind us. But uh, then again, there's always that potential for a capitulation style uh, or black swan catalyst that really drives us lower. And we're testing that trend on the NASDAQ. Again, uh, technically, the NASDAQ had its bottom here on October 13th, going all the way down to 253. Uh, and so now we're testing the trend, uh, which it's not just the NASDAQ that we're testing the trend on. Uh, it's also, if we hop on over to... The S&P 500, we see the same trend trying to get tested. This is the fourth time in six months that the S&P 500 has tried to break this, which is pretty remarkable. And uh, if we head on over to uh, even, for example, uh, Tesla, uh, very similar as well. Uh, it, we actually don't have a trend line drawn here, but we can see the trend has been pretty much straight down. Let's go ahead and draw it. So we'll grab it from here. And uh, it feels as though potentially that trend has broken on Tesla, uh, which is also very similar to what we're seeing at Bitcoin. Uh, and so Bitcoin, uh, some incredible movements here. We'll have to move. Uh, let's go to the week chart here. I can draw a little bit of a better trend. There we go. Uh, so with Bitcoin, very similar as well. If we hop in and uh, basically just try to draw a peak to bottom here uh, and a line on the left a little bit. We get somewhat of a, of a downtrend like this that certainly isn't broken. And uh, there are arguments that now we're breaking that, so which makes sense. Uh, we're seeing that again across the board, whether it's the SPY uh, being tested again for the fourth time in the last six months, the NASDAQ, Tesla, Bitcoin, you name it. <laughs> we're having the, a similar movement. Uh, in a lot of places. Now, that could be because a rising tide lifts all ships, right? And there's always this argument that, well, sure, a rising tide might lift all ships, but if we end up hitting a black swan or we end up hitting a double wave of inflation, we'll be right back to new lows. 
those are very real uh, risks uh, that we'll have to pay attention to. Uh, and so I think inflationary data is uh, most critical. And so that's where when we look at catalysts uh, looking ahead, I think we've got a few that we can look at. Uh, first and probably the most important is right before the Federal Reserve meeting, uh, which uh, is probably the most important catalyst coming up. But right before the Federal Reserve meeting on January 30th, we'll get that. I should I'll call it the second most important piece, and that is the ECI. That's the uh, Employment Compensation Index. This is one of the favorites of the Federal Reserve. We'll be getting the ECI release on January 30th. My birthday is on the 28th. Uh, but the ECI release on the 30th also aligns with, of course, the expiration of the program coupon code on building your wealth. You get lifetime access to those. Uh, and uh, the ECI is expected, uh, well, it has a survey of 1.2% gain. Uh, we'll, we'll see what it, this is a quarterly report that comes out and the Fed likes to watch it for inflections. We'll see. Uh, but uh, obviously, employment compensation is a big deal for the Fed. Uh, and actually, oops, I think it, it either got moved or I was wrong. Uh, it looks like for the fourth quarter, it's actually coming out on the 31st. So apologies for that. Uh, the 31st is actually the first day that the Federal Reserve meets, and then they'll have their FOMC press conference and uh, rate decision the day after on February 1st. We do have a little bit more data coming out before that, including we have... Uh, let's see. Today we don't. Tomorrow we'll have the uh, that's uh, January 24th. We'll have uh, PMIs coming out on services and manufacturing from the S&P. We'll have a manufacturing index release on uh, the 24th as well. Mortgage applications on the 25th. On the 26th, we'll get some GDP numbers quarter over quarter analysis. Uh, expecting 2.7% down from 3.2%. We'll get uh, some inventory figures, new home sales on the 26th, personal income figures on the 27th with real personal spending. We'll also get uh, sentiment from the University of Michigan one year out and five years out. Now, we actually get a miss to the downside last time on expectations for inflation, so hopefully that holds as well. The uh, S&P uh, numbers for uh, real estate price movements for November come out on January 31st. This, I think, is actually ridiculous that the housing numbers take so long to come out. We could go in to multiple listing services right now and, and, and pull what the housing price changes are for the 20 uh, cities of the S&P 500. I'm personally tempted to just make my own S&P 500 uh, <laughs> core logic, Case-Shiller style 20 city index and just report it way earlier. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. Think about it. January 31st, I can already tell you the numbers for January. And the S&P in, and the Case-Shiller indices are telling you the numbers for November. I mean, that's, that's a full uh, two months of data that are being ignored. We're looking at you know, data from three months ago. Uh, which is quite remarkable. But uh, that's one of the things about real estate. It moves so terribly much slower uh, than uh, than the rest of the markets uh, and uh, the rest of the market data even. Uh, but then again, that could also create some opportunities, especially since I think a catalyst coming up for real estate will be our first year-over-year -year negative 
uh, sales numbers for real estate. Now, that's actually a big deal because when we start looking at negative year-over-year uh, -year numbers, what ends up happening? Well, people start getting a little bit panicked, <laughs> which uh, is, is only uh, interesting to the point that maybe it creates an opportunity to actually finally buy in a little bit of a fear environment. And those negative year-over-year -year numbers start coming out uh, approximately uh, I would say by once we get our February numbers, which we won't actually get given this crazy delay until April, we'll start seeing those negative year over year numbers. And that will probably continue for about six to nine months. And those sort of negative numbers will, uh, in my opinion, end up being quite painful uh, to where uh, unless rates fall substantially, uh, some, some fear catalyst could continue to push prices down quite a bit. That now brings us to the Federal Reserve and uh, rate projections. Let's go ahead and pull those up really quick. And we'll also see what's going on in our pre-market here. And we got some stuff to talk about with the Fed. So uh, pre-market actually it was red. It's, it's tipped green a little bit here. Pre-market now sitting Dow up a 0.11, S&P up 0.09. You've got NASDAQ futures up uh, 0.2. If we take a look at bonds here, you're sitting right back at 3.5 for that 10-year treasury. We did drop to about 3.39 last week, bounced right back to about 3.5. There are a lot of expectations that the 10-year treasury is actually going to end up sitting at 3.5% for the rest of the decade. Uh, which uh, I, I think is a little bit of an extreme uh, assumption, but uh, it's one we're going to be paying attention to. It, you do have oil up again, about 1%. Uh, a lot of fears that China's reopening uh, is going to push oil up uh, substantially. Although if you look at oil on a one-year chart here, it looks nothing more. Uh, it looks like nothing more than just regular fluctuations in the oil market. Uh, if really this represents the Chinese reopening catalyst, it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Though some argue that, don't worry, that is still working its way up to 100 bucks to get priced in, which would, of course, drive inflationary pressures up, which would be less than ideal. Uh, we'll talk about China a little bit more as well later. But right now, markets are pricing in a 38.6% chance of a pause. Yeah, a 38.6% chance that on February 1st, the Federal Reserve ends up pausing. That is in contrast to a 61.4% chance that the Federal Reserve hikes rates 0.25% with no probabilities assigned to a 50 basis point hike. None at all. And this is really the bond market once again telling us the Fed is being too aggressive. It's time to dial back expectations on the Fed. There was actually, uh, well, we can actually look at uh, what what futures are indicating. The Wall Street or the Financial Times rather did a great piece on this. Uh, Financial Times here uh, uh, just reported that the futures market indicates that the Fed won't even make it to five percent. Instead, not only won't they make it to five percent, they'll probably cap out at about four point seven five percent. But by the end of the year. According to the Financial Times, the futures market is pricing in at least a half percent of cuts. And by the end of 2024, the Fed funds rate will fall down to 2.8%. And when you look at the depth of the inversion of the yield curve, historically, we are pricing in that by the time the Fed is done cutting rates, we will be right back at zero 
Now, the Fed might not be done cutting rates unless something massively breaks until potentially 2026, which means we could really be going through 24, 25, 26. We could be going through three years of rate cuts unless they break something and are forced to drive down uh, rates lower. But I expect that they'll slowly trickle down rates. And that's exactly what the bond market is expecting as well. Of course, you do have individuals like Michael Burry who say that, well, yes, we might see even a half, uh, a negative half percent of deflationary figures in CPI this year, which could actually end up leading the Federal Reserve to cut rates this year as the bond market is pricing in. But don't get too excited. We'll end up with a second wave of inflation, says Michael Burry, and that'll end up leading the Fed to have to raise rates again, just like they did after the 70s level of inflation where they lowered rates and then ended up popping back up to, uh, to, to have to raise rates again in the early 80s. But this time, because they had broken inflation expectations, they had to raise rates more aggressively. Now, I somewhat dispute this mostly, well, partially because of hope, but also because uh, the quote, this time is different. Oh, gosh, neither of those actually sound like good reasons. No, the 70s inflation was substantially different from the inflation that we face today, no matter how you slice it. We had just left the gold standard uh, in the early 70s. And we just ended up removing price caps from the administrations of the late 60s and early 70s. That led prices to initially soar around conveniently the same time as we had left the gold standard, which led to this belief that, oh, we're about to turn into the Weimar Republic, and there was no precedent for the Fed actually ever being able to control inflation on a fiat currency, because it had never been done before in America. In fact, the only history we had to look at in the 70s was that every single currency that has ever existed has failed. So, of course, inflation expectations uh, were at least somewhat unanchored in the 70s. We don't have that problem today. Uh, now, it's possible that problem could come back, but it appears that whether you look at consumers or you look at the bond market, the belief is that inflation should continue to trend down. Now, we do have five-year break-even inflation rates, which are somewhat volatile. They're sitting at about 2.29 right now. They were as low as 2.19 a week ago. I was hoping that downtrend would continue because I personally think inflation break-even expectations on the five-year need to go down to something like 1.5, 1.6 before the Fed actually cuts. However, we're well off the 3.6 where we have been previously. And we're on a straight downtrend, despite the sort of daily volatility that we get on the five-year break-even. Going back, though, to the Financial Times, we can see that the Financial Times argues that one-year U.S. inflation swaps are only pricing at 1.77%. That's the lowest level in more than two years. And the one-year break-even inflation rate stands at 2%, potentially indicating that inflation might be down as low as 2% by the end of next or at the end of this year. And so the market, as they say, genuinely believes that inflation will come down more quickly than the Federal Reserve actually expects it to. Now, uh, of course, the Federal Reserve says, hey, we don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s or the 80s. So as Christopher Waller says, quote, we do not want to be head faked, 
inflation is not just going to miraculously melt away. It's going to be a slower, harder slog to get inflation down. And therefore, we have to keep rates higher for longer and not start cutting rates by the end of the year. This stands in large contrast to the market. So now, how is it possible that the market could be pricing in rate cuts when you have individuals uh, at the Federal Reserve saying, we're not going to cut by the end of the year? Well, this is possible because the Federal Reserve is between a rock and a hard place. As soon as they say or in any way indicate or suggest that they are actually agreeing with the market that they might cut rates by the end of the year, which even if they say they won't right now, they still can, right? They have the right to change their mind, just like you and I have the opportunity to flip-flop. So <laughs> uh, the, as soon as the Fed, and this is the rock in a hard place situation, the Fed obviously now in control of driving the ship towards inflation plummeting. But as soon as the Federal Reserve suggests, sure, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we'll cut rates by the end of the year. I expect that they would set off one of the largest, not only stock market rallies, but they would actually end up setting off a rally in the bond market. Now, this is important. If bond prices rally up because all of a sudden people say, that's it, inflation's done. Let's take our cash, throw it into bonds. What happens is bond yields go down. And when bond yields go down because prices of bonds are going up, what ends up happening? Well, you end up doing what's known as loosening financial conditions. A lot of interest rates are tied to interest rates in the bond market. So that could be credit card rates, mortgage rates. Uh, it could be rates on a car, a boat, a plane. Uh, it could be a margin line of credit for a company or a wholesale line of credit. All of these rates coming down would loosen stress on businesses and people, which is great for us, but actually runs counter to the Federal Reserve's goals. And all of that could be set off in motion simply by the Fed yapping. And this is why markets have kind of started to look at the Fed and say, uh-huh, whatever you say, Fed, we get it. We see you. We hear you. We see you. But we're over it. Now, of course, there are absolutely still real risks. One of those real risks are the fact that jobs and wage data have to convincingly come in low, essentially. Uh, now, this isn't to say we don't want individuals to start making more money, but it is to say that when that employment cost index comes out for Q4 on January 31st, we need to see that we're not introducing any kind of wage price spiral because that is not only likely to lead to entrenched inflation, but it is likely to break inflation expectations. Now, one of the most reliable indicators for the Federal Reserve cutting rates is actually fascinating. And it has to do with this thing called the two-year treasury bond in relation to the FOMC rate. Now, watch this. This is crazy. So what you want to see here is that in 2004, the two-year treasury fell below, uh, this is probably closer to 2005, actually. 2005, the two-year treasury fell below the Federal Reserve's FOMC rate. You can see the uh, two-year treasury actually led the Federal Reserve's rates up. See that here, how this blue line, that's the two-year treasury? See how it's more lumpy because it moves with the stock market? That two-year rate, actually led the Federal Reserve's rates up. And it's important to remember that the Federal Reserve 
frequently follows what the bond market tells it to do. So even though there's fluctuation, once it became clear that we potentially had hit a peak here, the Federal Reserve happened to hold on rates and they held without the two year ever breaking the FOMC line again. And as the two year treasury fell, so did all of a sudden rate cuts start coming. Now, of course, we fell into a recession in 2007, 8, and 9. Uh, but there was another instance as well, where if we look at over here, 2018, we could actually see again the two-year lifting off over here before the Federal Reserve's liftoff. Two-year peaks out above the Fed FOMC rate, breaks on the hold, and then what? The two-year starts falling, and sure enough, the Fed starts cutting. Now, what's remarkable about this is if we pop up over here, look at what just happened. We, we have literally had the two-year lead the Fed up and away, up and away. There has not been a crossover of the two-year and the Fed FOMC rate. What just happened? The bond market did it again. It said rates are coming or rate cuts are coming. Now, that's not to say we're not doing this right before a recession. In fact, honestly, we're probably already in the recession. Uh, in fact, if we look at last year, we already had a quote-unquote technical recession, two quarters in a row of negative GDP, unless, of course, somehow that magically gets revised away, or we just had a really long and shallow recession. Honestly, I don't really care. I am treating this situation as if we are in a recession. And in my opinion, that means increasing frugality, decreasing debt, and working harder to ensure that you could maximize your income. That is important in these sorts of times. But these cuts, or, or I should say this sort of dropping in the two-year treasury, it, in my opinion, is one of the most reliable indicators that we have suggesting that the Fed is trending towards this idea of flipping and having to cut. Now, another thing that's pretty weird. And, and this is another thing that sort of suggests, hey, if the Fed keeps going here, they might end up breaking something. You have this Federal Reserve facility called the Fed Repo Facility. And the Repo Facility is supposed to be a temporary place where people, well, I should say money markets, not people, but money markets, banks, institutions can park money overnight. And they can receive a yield on this, roughly equal to what the, Fed, uh, the, the, the Fed's real, uh, uh, federal funds rate is. Now, that Federal Reserve repo facility has exploded in use since about March of 2021. And there were some changes here in liquidity and reserve requirements at banks that actually occurred on March 31st, which perfectly coincides with all of a sudden when banks started using the reverse repo facility. Well, now we're sitting somewhere at about $2 trillion of money sitting over here. Now, there are some problems with this. Uh, and we're going to hop on over here to a Financial Times piece where uh, they make this observation. They make the observation that investors are stashing an average of $2.2 trillion away at the reverse repo facility. And you might ask yourself, okay, well, you know, why does that matter? Well, the reason it matters is simple. Instead of institutions buying treasury bonds in a time of quantitative 
tightening, which remember if they buy bonds that would increase prices and somewhat lower yields, but then it would let the Fed kind of dump more bonds, right? So it lets them roll off bonds. It lets markets absorb those bonds. Rather than that happening, what's actually happening is the Fed is quantitatively tightening, but people aren't buying treasuries to offset that. And when I say people, I mean institutions. Instead, they're parking their money into the overnight repo facility. Because think about it. If you could earn 3.75 basis points in the repo facility and you have zero risk, it's literally deemed risk-free. And not only is it a risk-free investment, but there is no market volatility, right? Even treasury bonds are considered risk-free, but you have market volatility. Not only do you have uh, no market volatility in the repo facility, but you are risk-free. So you have the benefits uh, that treasury bonds don't have, which have market risk. The Fed repo facility doesn't. So institutions are like, well, gosh, okay, we'll just park our money over in the repo facility. To some degree, this leads to a massive liquidity crunch in the bond market. And this is the one place where investors suggest if this continues, we could end up seeing something break in markets, which ends up leading to some kind of black swan catalyst where the Fed has to swoop in and bail out markets, sub uh, basically support the, the uh, fiscal plumbing uh, or the, the, uh, uh, the, the financial system, so to speak, uh, much like the Bank of England did. And then that then either ushers in back the normal era of quantitative easing or we potentially reignite inflation by doing so. And uh, then we end up proving Michael Burry right. So there's some risks to that especially since there are still other risks to inflation that we need to consider. Uh, consider that um, when we had uh, the earnings call for Procter & Gamble, which I covered last week, one of the things that made me nervous about it was, oopsies, we actually started seeing signs of inflation still running hot for Procter & Gamble. Now, personally, I think there's a little bit of a risk that Procter & Gamble just didn't hedge appropriately well, because they, they said they didn't. Uh, or they had contracts roll over from 2021 into 2022. So I'm treating them right now as a little bit of an outlier, but they are an outlier that says, hey, we're still dealing with inflationary pressures. I'm hoping that's just their excuse for, well, basically having bad earnings. Now, Barclays had a great piece on the market and the economy and the Fed. And out of the piece, one of the most important parts for me was the risk that CPI actually doesn't come down. Now, that's probably the biggest thing we're not pricing in. See, we are pricing in already that the housing sector is going to roll over. That's already priced in to some extent into why we're seeing the stock market go green, right? We believe that inflation is going to plummet. And there are a lot of spammers in the Facebook comments on my live stream here. Okay, can't ban. Ah, interesting. I, for some reason, I can't ban them either. Well, ignore the losers who are chatting in the chat. There's no way I can chat while doing this. <laughs> uh, that is impersonating me. Everybody else chatting, I respect. But anyway, continuing on. The big risk is that we end up seeing uh, in, in inflation from, from CPI shelter not end up showing up or we end up seeing finance. And this is why the Fed has to be tough, right? 
Imagine the Fed loosens financial conditions, much like I talked about. And then all of a sudden, real estate starts going up again and uh, rents start going up again. Well, what do you have in a situation like that? A crisis. <laughs> you have a really bad situation because the hope that we have that inflation is going to plummet is that CPI is going to fall due to housing and new and used vehicles, uh, which I think it's I think we can all agree that new and used vehicles are probably going to continue their plummet. But if financial conditions shift and we start supporting shelter inflation going up again, that would be bad. And I almost guarantee you, I would put money on it, I should say, that one of the discussions uh, that uh, that Jerome Powell is having with his uh, board, essentially, is the idea that, hey, look, if we end up talking this market up and we end up saying that all is good, inflation is coming down, then you are going to break any hope that inflation will come down via uh, uh, shelter, the anchor of inflation uh, through shelter. That's a big deal. So uh, these are critical things that we want to pay attention to. Now, uh, on top of this, what I think is also really interesting is uh, the, what the Eurozone is doing, but also what we've got going on with China. So we've got to talk about these things, too. So let's take a brief moment and uh, look at the Eurozone. So uh, in the Eurozone, we, uh, we just had this uh, piece that was put out by Zabine. Zabine. Uh, she is actually a board member uh, of the uh, ECB, the European Central Bank. This is a, a piece that she wrote in the, uh, oh no, I'm sorry. She's a an executive board member of Deutsche, uh, Deutsche Bundesbank. Aha, okay, not the ECB. Uh, either way, she wrote a piece in the uh, Financial Times basically talking about how in the past they had to cut or they had to have low rates uh, to essentially support what was too low inflation. And today they have to do the opposite, right? That's That's where she starts. Fine, not a big deal. But what we want to look at is she says over here, this is very much what I've been talking about as potentially that risk for the United States. Look at it. Just listen to this piece right here. The consequences of the significant market footprint resulting from our purchase programs, roughly 40% of public debt is in the hands of the Eurozone system. And those issues are increasingly visible. Collateral scarcity in markets for German bonds is a significant distortion. Okay, let me now try to say this in English uh, because, uh, you know, I'm not, I, <laughs> uh, that would, that is a mouthful. So in English, as we have less volatility or as we have less liquidity in the bond market, we increase the odds of breaking something both in Europe and the United States, much like what we saw in England. And this is a member of the Deutsche Bundesbank telling you that we are seeing the same problems that England saw to some degree, to a lesser extent, obviously, and as the U.S. faces in our bond market. And this is a problem because at some point in the future, we might have to step in and start buying bonds again. Right now, we, the European uh, banks are, uh, or the European Central Bank is expected to start quantitative tightening by essentially rolling off bonds, much like the United States is doing. But that is going to, again, reduce liquidity. So hopefully, hopefully investors like you and me buy bonds is what they're saying, so they don't end up breaking something. 
but that breaking something is probably the one swan, uh, or should I say black swan, <laughs> that, uh, that everyone is concerned about. Uh, so we'll have to pay attention to this dearly. So, all right, let's continue on. So that's the, uh, uh, that's the European situation reiterating what we have here. The other issue is China. And uh, this, is, <laughs> this is another big one uh, that we have to pay attention to. And this is the reopening inflation concern. Remember, we basically went from zero COVID to full COVID. China's economy, as a result, grew at its second slowest pace since, 19, since the 1970s. The GDP didn't come in as badly as expected. It came in at 3% for 2022 instead of the 2.7 expected. Uh, joblessness down to 5.5%. Retail sales actually beat, beating three months of disappointments. But China's population is starting to shrink, leading to longer-term concerns that China is going to slow down. It's the first time in 60 years that we've seen China's population shrink. And we actually had 850,000 fewer people alive in China than we did at the end of 2021. We also only had 9.56 million babies born in 2022. That's the lowest level of babies born since 1950. And this is in part, uh, well, uh, the population decline is in part because of low numbers of babies born, but also people leaving China. 10.4 million individuals died. But remember, we had a population decline of uh, of, of 1. Uh, we had a population decline of uh, 850,000. The uh, difference between deaths and babies born, uh, that actually is somewhere close to that. Uh, let's see here. Let's do that number really quick. That's 10.41 10 minus 9.56. Oh, that's about, yeah, okay, that, that actually aligns with the 850,000. Okay, in my opinion, uh, people, people dying doesn't fully account for the difference in the population in China. I think there's a higher likelihood there's also some amount of individuals who are leaving China and moving to different areas. I don't think China wants to send that signal, so it's unlikely that we're going to see that sort of data come out of China. It's actually surprising that they even give us negative data sometimes, but uh I wouldn't be surprised if there, there is a larger decline actually happening than we expect. But anyway, they are suggesting it's solely because less babies were born compared to uh, how many individuals died. Uh, now, that gives you a little bit of background on, on sort of the longer term potential lid on China's growth. Uh, although China is doing better than expected now. And Bloomberg actually had a great piece analyzing the potential impact of China's reopening. And this, in my opinion, is probably one of the most important pieces. And the uh, estimate is that China's reopening could uh, essentially come with a 750 or uh, 720? Yeah, $720 billion inflation bomb. Now, I think this is interesting because Nomura Holdings indicated that the Chinese households have built up about $720 billion. Now, $720 billion in savings is about one-third of what the United States built up of about $2 trillion in excess savings. And part of that is because China didn't offer stimulus payments to people. Instead, they offered money to corporations to keep people employed. So they actually, which is really wild. I mean, think about that for a moment. Just take like a brief pause and think about that for a moment. China, a socialist company or, or socialist country, provided money to businesses to keep people employed. 
Whereas the United States, under a capitalist structure, gave money to everyone. <laughs> it's just interesting, uh, which seems more socialistic, right? Anyway, uh, so the, the numbers are fascinating, though. The potential that the Chinese individuals have themselves saved up $720 billion does potentially send the signal that, yes, maybe we could see an inflationary surge or at least some kind of pressure from China. Now, personally, and this is my opinion, I actually believe that most supply chains today have built themselves up to make sure a 2021 shortage never happens again. People and businesses are frustrated that they did not have the supply to fulfill demand. The worst feeling is when you're in business, but you can't fulfill all the orders you're getting. It's the worst feeling ever. It makes CEOs look like clowns, and it pisses people off, especially investors. And so I think that a lot of companies, and this is what we're seeing with companies like Taiwan Semiconductors, I think these companies are setting up massive spare capacity to where right now we're kind of like, like if this is a normal rubber band, we're kind of like a crumpled up rubber band right now. We're just waiting for some more demand to start coming because we're in a recessionary environment. Whereas in 2021, the rubber band looked like this. It was almost stretched to the extreme and, and some would argue it snapped, right? So if the rubber band represents capacity, I think we're scrunchy right now which is good because that means if we reopen, you could kind of scrunchy to normal and uh, hope that the China's uh, in, in, you know, reopening doesn't create the sort of inflationary uh, disaster that, we've, uh, that, we, that we saw in 2021. Now, uh, I made a little note here that I think a mega surge of Chinese pent-up demand will actually end up being very good for BYD and Tesla. I, I believe this because I think after three years of lockdowns, people are going to want a car. Uh, now, the BYD... Uh, there are some really great videos on the Auto 3 uh, in the United Kingdom that was just released from BYD. Their full self-driving is actually non-existent. Uh, now, to the extent that you think that matters for vehicle developers, uh, I think it's quite fascinating. But they essentially have adaptive cruise control and lane centering. But I think Honda's had that for like three years now, so I personally don't find that very impressive. However, they are less expensive vehicles than Tesla's. So while Tesla does have that technology edge, I'm not sure yet that people might want to pay that sort of money uh, for a Tesla versus a BYD. And so you're probably still competing in two different markets. I do think it's very interesting, though, and I've been saying this for over a year, uh, that I think the Chinese are very, very smart in that they ramped up their precautionary savings because the government wasn't going to come do that for them. Uh, and this here shows you the uh, potential net increase in China's household savings deposits. I here wrote a wow on that because I think it's actually very impressive that they pulled this off without the help of the government. I don't think we would have seen that happen here. We would have seen a lot more uh, defaults and foreclosures. Uh, but then again, you know, we don't have the kind of punishments for for uh, not paying back your debts as, as China does. Uh, and so uh, we'll see if commodity prices and oil and uh, supply chains end up inflating like they did here in 2021. Again, I don't think so. So I think the rise in oil... Uh, prices right now is a little bit more of a, a trading move. 
do keep in mind that the substantial movements that we've seen away from, for example, growth, innovation, and technology, uh, certainly profitless tech, but getting away from profitless tech makes sense in a, in a recession. I think a substantial portion of this uh, a rise in oil that we've seen recently, which is still nominal, is just a tactical trade. It's, hey, it's logical to sell the idea that China is going to cause a reinflationary boom. Let's go long oil and then talk up how much of an inflationary boom there's going to be in China. Personally, not the biggest believer of that. So this gives us a little bit of insight into the Fed, where rates are going, uh, commodities uh, risks, but also other risks that we face to inflation. All right, moving on. Let's uh, let's take a quick check of pre-market, and we've got a bunch of other things to cover as well, so that'll be fun. Let us see what we have here. Uh, right. Uh, again, please ignore the scammers uh, in the um, Facebook chat. I, this is this is why I kept telling myself, don't stream on Facebook. <laughs> anyway. All right. Uh, taking a quick pr uh, peek here at uh, the pre-market. Let's see what we've got here. Uh, wow. Wayfair was up 20.25% after rate cuts on a Friday. Pre-market, Wayfair up 12%. This is actually remarkable. It actually makes me interested in taking a brief look at uh, Wayfair's fundamentals. Let's go ahead and do that together. Uh, Wayfair, and, and this is one of the things that we're seeing is companies are laying off and then their stocks are actually rising. Uh, for example, we just this morning had another layoff announcement. We had, uh, actually, I mean, this follows multiple waves of layoff announcements uh, that we've seen. Uh, but uh, we have a 6% of Spotify's workforce being laid off, and the stock now up 6% on that idea. Now, Spotify already off of its bottom, which was suffered closer to around Christmas. Eh, looks like the bottom. I mean, it was relatively flat from about the beginning of November to Christmas Eve, but uh, Christmas Eve roughly around a similar bottom, up 6% now on layoffs. And this makes me curious about... Uh, Wayfair's fundamentals, obviously Wayfair, one of those consumer discretionary stocks, absolutely beaten the crap, uh, mostly in my opinion, because of uh, this, this idea that, okay, well, people are going to buy less stuff uh, in a recessionary environment, so let's tactically trade out of that. But uh, let's take a brief look at some of their financials here. We did have a revenue decline year over year on both the nine-month and the six-month. Uh, for Wayfair. And uh, that decline looks to be roughly about 10% here. Although let's get, let's see what the inflection here is. 3121. Yeah, it looks like that's about a 9.9% decline uh, in year over year rev. And if we look at it on the nine month, 9117 divided by 10456, we're looking at about a 12.9% decline. This actually implies that things are getting better and not worse. Uh, cost of goods sold, 21.6 divided by 2840, sitting at about 29.1-ish uh, uh, percent uh, cost of goods sold over here. Relative to what we had in 2021, it looks, let's see what our inflationary pressure looks like. Uh, it's actually about the same, roughly about the same. 
Uh, that's fascinating. You can see the company is still advertising a little more than a 10% increase here in advertising. Big boost in SG&A. Surprising. And that actually is probably why they've announced some layoffs because one of the things that has pushed them towards a deeper net loss here of $283 million is actually this growth probably in SG&A to maintain the uh, revenue that they've received. So they're advertising more and growing SG&A. But again, they did just announce uh, layoffs, and, and so their stock has really popped on this. Just beware, profitless companies, very, very risky in a recessionary environment, especially if they're negative free cash flow. Sometimes you can actually have a net loss, but some of it just be based on stock-based comp. Uh, however, we can see here that net cash used in operating activities is negative $772 million. If we look uh, at uh, their free cash flow, and we take off purchases of equipment here. We're at all, we're at essentially a negative nine hundred million dollar free cash flow in nine months. So you're burning almost a billion dollars in nine months. Go to the uh, balance sheet here. We're looking at maybe uh, around uh, one point two billion dollars, not considering inventories or receivables of uh, essentially cash over here. Whoopsies. Uh, there we go. And uh, liabilities of accounts payable of about $1 billion, other current liabilities of almost another billion dollars. We've got $2 billion of current liabilities and long-term liabilities here of another $3 billion. The company does not have a lot of cash. Uh, they will burn through all of their current assets just paying for their current liabilities. So that's, that is probably the biggest red flag when you look at money losing companies. And it's one of the reasons that I believe uh, some of the best investments that could be made now, obviously you have to figure this out for yourself. I can't advise your portfolio, even though I'm a person, uh, uh, even though I'm a financial advisor. Uh, I personally think that yes, while the ocean of stocks going up can lead some of these cash losing companies to also go up, and then we could see some meme momentum in them. I think there's some massive risks to investing in money losing companies in a recessionary environment, because as cash needs go up at these companies, I think they'll be forced to either raise debt or sell stock. And if they sell stock in a low liquidity time, you could see very, very quick and sudden drawdowns of the stock valuations, whereas companies that have free cash flow won't have to do that. So I think you have substantially larger risks. And for me, the risk of a money losing company isn't worth that potential YOLO on the game. Now, maybe what, what you do is you, instead of allocating a lot of cash to cash losing companies, you look at more of things like, uh, you know, longer call options, or maybe you even out of the money call options, if you need to satisfy sort of that YOLO appetite. Not the biggest fan of doing that because I personally rather take the premium and go buy shares. Uh, but that, that is something that people do, especially when wafer is up 20% on Friday and now 12% up in pre-market. So something, something to consider. But from a fundamental point of view, there are definitely some substantial risks here uh, that, that I would be careful of. So, uh, all right, let's, uh, let's take a brief moment and see uh, what, uh, what we've got going on over at the Doombergs. Let's take a listen in over here. Reserve economist Claudia, let me go. I want, I want to get to a more thoughtful thing, a more theoretical thing. But in your note is something that is ancient. High inflation cures high inflation. 
That is foundational. Discuss that concept. Right. Well, we have to remember the Federal Reserve does not set <laughs> prices. Right. This what we see is they're in there. Right. They're they're raising costs of things like borrowing, which are important in decisions. And yet this is an interplay of hundreds of millions of American consumers and tens of millions of businesses. So I, as someone who followed consumer spending very closely in my 10 years at the Federal Reserve, the retail sales last week were kind of a punch in the gut, right? The American consumer, re I mean, this is 70% of GDP, and yet this is mainly good spending, and businesses need to well, get the, the signal, like consumers will get price sensitive. So this is the idea of the high inflation. At some point, the consumers pull back, and then the businesses you know, they got to price it in and, and at least tamp down that inflation and maybe even cut some prices. There are the two M's in the academics. There's the University of Michigan and all the great inflation work done there over the years. And also a small startup school on the banks of the Charles River in Boston, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Claudia, I want to talk about Olivier Blanchard's new effort, which I think you're in close. Uh, well, she's got a point there that really consumers do make up 70 percent. Of, uh, of, of the economy. Now, now, we've known this, right? But it's worth reiterating because what did we get in retail sales? We got a massive revision down in retail sales for the last quarters. But not only did we get a massive revision down, we ended up getting a big miss for this uh, or prior months. But for, for this month, we got a big miss. So, uh, you know, definitely some pain in, uh, in, uh, in, in the... Um, world of consumer spending. And uh, the hope is obviously that that sends a little bit of a signal to the Federal Reserve to relax. But don't worry, it won't. <laughs> Fed ain't going anywhere, at least for now. The reasons that we've had so much inflation is our economy was not resilient. Whether it was supply chains or we had underpaid workers, and that those are not levers that the Federal, or that the Federal Reserve can pull and we have learned in this crisis, fiscal policy is powerful. Something that's powerful, we should spend a lot of time getting it right in terms of how to use that. The Fed is, I mean, we've learned a lot about the Fed, but it is not our powerfulest our most powerful tool. Well, I want to just say, Claudia, last week, uh, one of the conversations, not on air, behind closed doors of executives of companies <clears throat> worldwide were not blaming the, blaming the supply chain disruptions. They were blaming the last payment that was made out in 2021 to stimulate an economy that already was flush with cash. And they're saying it's going to take time for that to work through. But that was the main driving factor of inflation. Do you disagree? So it's the beginning of 2023. I mean, we, it's absolutely in the mix, right? And this is the thing about we learned that policy was very powerful. We also took a big dent in consumer spending when everything shut down. There's still a lot of pent-up demand. I think we forget this time last year, we were coming out of an Omicron wave that really was affecting, if nothing else, getting keeping workers on the job. And then we were hit by the war in Ukraine, Right. There have been some really important disruptions to the economy, to our daily lives since those stimulus checks went out. And frankly, you can only spend those once. Right. So there's actually been a drag on fiscal policy that probably has a lot to do with some of the weakness we saw at the end of of this past year. Well, Washington so, is pretty much in gridlock. So there's a lot of uh, it's an interesting uh, argument when, when we actually the timing of when we actually got those stimmy checks. So now. Unfortunately, uh, we have to talk about uh, something that 
Something that irks everyone in markets is the following chart, folks. It is the U.S. no longer actually approaching the debt ceiling, but actually having hit the debt ceiling on Thursday of last week. And we should touch a little bit on the implications of uh, hitting the debt ceiling and uh, some of the potential solutions or not solutions <laughs> that uh, that have been proposed for dealing with the debt ceiling. So first, we hit the debt ceiling limit. That doesn't actually mean anything yet because we haven't defaulted on our debt. Everybody's worried about default. So think about it kind of like maxing out your credit card, but not actually missing a payment yet on what's owed or what you're using your credit card for. This is because the government's kind of like going around looking in the mattress corner, you know, the, the crevices of the mattress and trying to rejigger things to make sure that, well, we can extend the time to uh, that, that in which we would actually default out to something known as default day or as Janet Yellen calls it, the X date. Some of the ways that the government plays with the X date is they can pause contributions or investments uh, into government workers' retirements healthcare payments, they can delay tax refunds, they can also suspend new investments into things uh, like uh, the disability fund or the post office retirement healthcare benefit funds, they can do a lot of this. And, and right now, the estimate is that we'll have enough money not to default on our debt until hopefully June 5th, 2023. So somewhere in here, some analysts suggest maybe July and August. So her date of June 5th is a little bit of a surprise. But yes, right now, we're at 100% of our authorized debt limit. Now, when the debt limit and the debt ceiling was first created, it was designed to allow the government to actually borrow money and make it easier for the government to borrow money. But what it's actually done is now it's become a political battle and has led to government shutdowns, much like in 2011, when the United States lost its triple A uh, debt rating, when we were just hours away from a default and everyone on TV had to deal with seeing parks shut down, uh, people pissed that they couldn't go to work or weren't getting paid as government workers, even some essential services. And uh, that ended up leading our credit rating to fall. And the stock market did react to this. Uh, however, the uh, sort of impact in the bond market was relatively limited. Uh, we, uh, we we didn't see much uh, in, in the way of fluctuation in, in yields any more than we would have seen otherwise on a regular basis. So it seemed like markets kind of got over this. And since 2011, we haven't had such crazy debt ceiling implications. However, now you've got concerns that, well, what if this time is different? And what if this time Republicans end up more hard-lined than what they have been in the past? Part of the reason people are this fearful is because of Kevin McCarthy's election. Remember that Kevin McCarthy's speaker election was so contested that it took 15 rounds to get him elected. We haven't seen that many rounds of a speaker election since the mid-1800s when we were debating slavery. That's intense. Now, we've had multiple speaker rounds as recently as the 1920s, but nowhere near as intense as what we saw just now since the 1850s, which is remarkable. Now, Kevin McCarthy calls for cuts to discretionary spending and something actually that a lot of people think is 
it's kind of odd. Republicans want to cut spending potentially for defense by as much as $75 billion. Now, part of the reason or motivation for that is they want to crimp the ability for the current Biden administration to send money to Ukraine for aid. Keep in mind that so far, NATO has been pretty committed. I mean, I would say astutely committed to supporting Ukraine, even to the point now that you've got Poland and the Netherlands considering sending uh, Generation 4 F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine, which would completely change the future of the battlefield in Ukraine. They have essentially no uh, air superiority or uh, uh, really capabilities uh, of offense beyond some tactics that they're using like drone attacks uh, uh, against Russian uh, positions now or even into Russian territory, actual Russian land. Uh, and so Republicans are calling for a limit to how much offensive power that Ukraine could get and really a limit to the spending in an argument that if we continue supporting this war, we could end up in a World War III situation. And given that Russia is a nuclear power, we end up walking into a nuclear war. Now, NATO so far seems convinced and Europe seems convinced that the likelihood of Putin engaging in any kind of nuclear combat, including strategic deployments of sort of localized nuclear warfare or warheads, is very, very small. And even though Putin has threatened it, NATO seems to be calling his bluff, even just because of talks around F-16s going to Ukraine. But also, now more than just armored personnel carriers potentially going to Ukraine, but potentially actual battle tanks coming over, like the German Leopard uh, battle tank uh, uh, heading over to Ukraine, or at least potentially heading to Ukraine from Poland. This is what Republicans want to rein in. They want to rein in the billions of dollars of discretionary spending that the Biden administration has available. The Biden administration says they will not negotiate over the debt ceiling. And this, uh, and, and if anything, the Biden administration so far seems convinced that the debt limit should be raised. Chuck Schumer argues that we want to move quickly on raising the debt ceiling. And given the potential stalemate that we saw by Republicans under Kevin McCarthy's leadership, where even Republicans can't get on the same page with things, there's a lot of nervousness that this could be another one of those default environments where, yep, the U.S. finally ends up not only leading to a government shutdown, much like what we saw in 2011, but for the first time ever, the government ends up defaulting on its debt. That could be really bad because it could reiterate that black swan event. Remember earlier we talked about how there's a lack of liquidity in the bond market. And if there's a lack of liquidity in the bond market and all of a sudden we potentially default on our debt, then there will be even less liquidity in the bond market. And now you're in a situation where the debt ceiling itself could create the black swan that crashes markets substantially lower than we've ever seen in this last down cycle. That is, we could hit brand new lows. The VIX could spike to 40 or 50, the fear-based index, the volatility index. And we could actually see capitulation that the United States has just lost their ability to operate. Institutions and foreign governments reduce their willingness to actually buy U.S. treasuries as foreign assets because now they're more unstable. Or the value of them has just plummeted. Yields rise and the economy goes into a deeper, darker recession. The worst time to probably default on our debt would be in a recession, which is one that we're probably in right now.
Now, there have been some ideas around this, and some of these ideas seem interesting. Some of them have already been shot down uh, in terms of how to potentially solve the disaster of approaching the debt limit. One of the ideas, as put together by uh, Barron's, is actually this idea that maybe, maybe Joe Biden can just break the law and play continuous spending anyway. Let's take a look at this argument because it's interesting. It's, I, I find it actually a little bit more interesting than the trillion dollar coin, which I'll reiterate in just a moment. So there are two potential things that the government uh, can do. Uh, and one of them is the trillion dollar coin, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the other is the institution of something known as the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974. This law requires that the president spend money for programs that have been legislated. Now, the reason this came up is because President Nixon said, you know what, I disagree with a bunch of spending, so I'm just going to not spend the money. And so Congress is like, dude, we've allocated this money. You have to spend it. And Nixon's like, make me. And so they did. They passed the 1974 Impoundment Act, which forces the president to spend money for things that Congress has allocated. In other words, Joe Biden potentially has a choice of breaking the law in that he breaks the law by not spending money uh, via the 1974 law, or he breaches the debt limit. Either way, he's in a situation where Barron says he would be in violation of one of his obligations as president. That is the obligation to uh, either make the payments as required by the 1974 law, or uh, he ends up breaking uh, the the uh, the law in the other direction by saying, well, we're just going to break the debt ceiling and make sure we kind of honor the other half of this law, which says I'm not allowed to break the law of not making payments on things. So this is a really interesting thesis that I believe this was the Barron's editorial board put together. Yeah, Barron advi Barron's advisors editorial team put this together. And they say they've actually sent this idea to the Treasury Department to encourage them to do just this. Now, they say they haven't heard back, but uh, uh, Barron's makes it pretty clear that, hey, we have a potential solution where you could break less of a law than a big law by breaking the debt ceiling and, and potentially driving us into uh, a, uh, a deeper recession. So fascinating idea. Will it actually go anywhere? Probably not, because we'll probably just end up raising the debt ceiling. We'll come to some kind of last minute negotiated settlement. Now, there is this idea that the, Ob uh, that the Obama administration came up with, and this was the idea that let's just create a trillion-dollar coin, and uh, the, since, since the Treasury Department can mint money, they'll just create a trillion-dollar coin. And if they create a trillion-dollar coin, do I have a coin around here? No, I don't have a prop around here. If they create a trillion-dollar coin, they could just go to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, we'd like to deposit this with you, and the Fed would just hand them a trillion dollars of cash. And given that the government runs at about a trillion dollar deficit every year, that could fund us for about a year. Now, Janet Yellen has argued that this could be rejected by the Federal Reserve, and it's unlikely that it would actually be accepted. 
But the idea was that this trillion dollar coin would actually be a physical coin made of platinum and it would be pegged at $1 trillion. There is a picture of potentially what it could look like and that's on screen now. The $1 trillion coin. It's basically just, it looks like a thick quarter with dollar sign 1T on it and the Statue of Liberty. All right, so that's an idea. But again, probably neither of ideas are likely to happen. Uh, Congress could potentially just pass some kind of uh, borrowing suspension uh, or, or basically a short-term extension for three to six months. My expectation, and then end up negotiating uh, some kind of debt hike. Uh, you know, my guess is that real talks in Congress won't actually start happening until uh, after tax season. One of the reasons for that as well is because the Treasury Department's going to get a lot of money from tax collections. And then the Treasury Department will actually be able to more accurately tell us when the X date is for the debt ceiling. But usually the debt ceiling debates, at least historically, are just a bunch of political hardlining and they're a bunch of nonsense. We'll see. Now we've got to talk crypto because Bitcoin has been kicking a double S lately and it is incredible to watch what Bitcoin is doing. And there are some pretty incredible things going on in the crypto market at the same time as Bitcoin is actually doing pretty dang well. Many of us, we've been seeing the trend broken on Bitcoin. Uh, here's our downtrend bouncing off on the fibs. Suggestion is that Bitcoin should be able to get right back to about 28,000. Remember that last year we saw Bitcoin sit pretty heavily between 28,000. Uh, this is the week chart over here. So we're looking at 2021, actually. Uh, but even over here uh, in 2022, we saw Bitcoin sit a lot around 28 to 30K over here. We saw that over here. There is now the belief that Bitcoin could quickly run back to about 28,000. And this is while at the same time, we've got some wild things happening uh, in, well, the world of crypto. Uh, specifically, Genesis filed for bankruptcy. Apparently, the company is going or undergoing confidential negotiations with various creditor groups amid a quote-unquote liquidity crunch. Uh, Genesis has, uh, you know, or a large owner of Genesis is the a digital currency group. Uh, however, so far, them, uh, uh, creditors and Genesis have failed on any kind of restructuring agreement. And Genesis uh, helped fund the Gemini Earn program, which was where Gemini would basically allow their users to stake stable coins and earn a yield on them. But because Genesis is now going essentially BK, uh, Gemini Earn has had to freeze withdrawals, freeze with gem redemptions, freeze payments. And it's been a big slap in the face to that part of Gemini, which has been deemed a pretty stable company uh, in the crypto world. A lot of institutions use uh, Gemini. Uh, for the institutional uh, custody of crypto assets. Uh, and so a lot of nervousness still happening in the crypto space, yet crypto actually overall doing decently right now. Even Ethereum is doing very, very well right now. And this is even with staking liquidity potentially coming, uh, coming pretty soon here. Remember that one of the big fears or FUD story around Ethereum was that when Ethereum goes through with its merge, which it did in about September of 2022, uh, somewhere around where, where Ethereum was trading for roughly where it is now, 16 to 1700, the fear was that 
after the merge, about six months later, stakers would be able to open up, essentially unlock their Ethereum accounts uh, or Ethereum coins that are staked. And that could lead to a large push of uh, selling pressure, which could drive Ethereum to lows we haven't seen so far. Yet what's remarkable is Ethereum so far might not end up pricing in any kind of, uh, of, of large selling pressure, mostly because of what researchers on Wall Street say, the advent of, and I know this word sounds kind of funny, uh, but LSDs. LSDs are deemed liquid staking derivatives. And basically, think about it like Lido. So we know that Lido is an option where people can place their Ethereum into Lido and essentially get staked Ethereum. They could take loans against it. They can transact their staked Ethereum and essentially use Ethereum as they would if, as if they were to have sold it. And so a lot of Wall Street uh, individuals analyzing uh, Ethereum now suggest that maybe we won't have that large uh, liquidation of Ethereum during uh, sort of that lockup expiration because of LSDs. That's the liquid staking uh, uh, derivatives. Uh, and the liquid staking market is up to about 33%. Here, I'll move my, remove myself from screen here for a moment. You can see that about 33% of Ethereum's holdings right now are sitting in liquid staking accounts, which reduces some of this belief that validators or those who have staked are going to dump when it becomes uh, possible for people to liquidate uh, out of the Ethereum 2.0 lockups. Now, we have the Shanghai update, which is EIP 4895. That's the next major initiative. That will finally end up allowing some withdrawals from Ethereum. Uh, that was supposed to come out in May. It's now expected to come out in about March. There was a, a lot of demand uh, uh, for folks to at least be able to have a little bit more liquidity because certainly there are a lot of validators who are locked up, who aren't using uh, LSDs, so to speak, uh, at least not the, uh, the kind we're talking about here, liquid staking derivatives, <laughs> right? Uh, but uh, Ethereum's, by, by, by the time of the merge, Ethereum had about $20 billion of staked assets, 13 million staked coins locked up. Uh, that um, uh, Since then, we've got, had about 3 million coins of Ethereum added not taken away. People are still adding to staked Ethereum, uh, which is really incredible because it, it indicates that maybe there isn't that much demand for liquidating Ethereum. And it's been really a good thing for the Ethereum protocol to see that more people are, are, are staking and locking themselves up. And now we're at uh, 16 million coins or about 13% of circulating supply locked into the protocol, which is also important because the more you have locked up in Ethereum, the more uh, secure the network is deemed to be. Uh, so we'll see. We'll, we'll see what ends up happening here. Uh, but, uh, oh, you know, a lot of folks still a little bit nervous about what ends up happening in March. And maybe what we're seeing now is just sort of that rising tide of the crypto market moving up. However, if you kind of look at uh, the, uh, uh, the Ethereum staking ratio compared to competitors, it's pretty low. Look at this chart here, and it'll show you that Ethereum staking level uh, is sitting somewhere at about 13%. Uh, 
whereas Cardano is sitting somewhere around 71% uh, of individuals in Cardano's state. It's 96% of people in the uh, Binance coin are staked. Avalanche, about 62%. Polkadot, 45%. Polygon, 39%. Tron, 44%. So really, you have a very low level of, of uh, Ethereum coins actually staked and, and potentially subject to those lockups. In English, this is a good thing that when March rolls around, maybe there won't be that massive pressure of selling or liquidating Ethereum that individuals have been fearful of. Especially since when you look at the total value locked on Ethereum contracts, which is different from percent staked, we actually haven't seen it plummet. Look at it here. Total value locked into smart contracts via Ethereum, 68%, which is the same as what we saw in 2021. Actually really incredibly bullish uh, for Ethereum. Uh, and and uh, to some extent, uh, the larger uh, portion of the crypto market, right? Ethereum and Bitcoin, pretty pretty incredible. Now, some other things that are pretty incredible are what I call crypto disasters, like what you had with uh, Sam Bankman Freed. Apparently, and this is quite remarkable, but apparently one third of all members of Congress actually received some kind of money from FTX via donations or whatever. Now, that's pretty scary. In fact, uh, here is uh, that article from Coindesk. We go through that Coindesk piece, we can see more than one in three of the 535 senators and representatives have received some kind of campaign support from FTX. And this guy showered politicians with money. Coindesk apparently identified 196 members of Congress, the new Congress, who had their campaigns funded by FTX. Here's a representative from California, uh, Lou Carrera, who was among dozens of current or incoming members of Congress who took FTX contributions, in this case, $2,900, the full limit, directly from Sam Bankman Freed himself. He said that he didn't know the gentleman, never talked to him, and decided to, or at least intends to, donate that money to the university uh, system, the uh, uh, California State University system, to support their Dreamer Education Fund. Now, what's crazy about that is if they do that, basically all these charitable contributions are at risk of having their money uh, clawed back through the FTX bankruptcy as, uh, as, as individuals seek to recover losses at FTX. Now, even though Sam Bankman-Fried has told us his net worth is only about a paltry $100,000, somehow about $700 million of, uh, of, of money that FTX had their hands on uh, has been, clawed, well, I, I should say seized by the Department of Justice. Now, that's kind of interesting because how can they seize $700 million from somebody who only has $100,000. Well, Reuters broke this down. Reuters suggested that $525 million of that seized money came from Robinhood shares that were seized. And then various other money came from money deposited, like $7 million deposited at Silvergate accounts associated with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, $94.5 million in cash from an account at Silvergate Bank, which was associated with the FTX Digital Markets Fund. Uh, and 50 million taken from other places. Even Elon Musk laughed 
at the idea that he only had $100,000. You could see that laughing right here. Only $100,000 left. Elon Musk laughing emojis here. It is kind of incredible that this individual has had complete access to the internet and we've seen a lot of movement at Alameda accounts or Alameda associated accounts uh, since his release back in uh, December from custody. And uh, it, it really goes to show how deep of a fraud this individual truly is. It's quite disgusting. However, through these liquidations, there have become some issues. Uh, for example, some money uh, was attempted to be liquidated by uh, some of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the court-appointed liquidators. And apparently they screwed up. And some of the liquidators ran into a margin call when they withdrew too much money uh, uh, from, uh, from, from certain uh, wrapped Bitcoin funds. Apparently, four wrapped Bitcoins were liquidated when the Alameda liquidators took too much money out of Aave, in which case they were margin called and suffered a loss of $72,000 at current prices. So in other words, Alameda liquidators went into Aave, took the money out of Aave without realizing that money was actually collateral for debt and ended up suffering a margin call and lost somewhere around $74,000 for doing so, which is kind of remarkable that the liquidators themselves for Alameda are getting liquidated. You, you just can't make this stuff up these days. It's, it's pretty remarkable. So at the same time, as all of this insanity is happening, the Genesis bankruptcy, these crazy liquidations uh, at uh, Alameda, the seizing of assets by the Justice Department, fear over Ethereum's uh, lockup expiration, so to speak, Bitcoin and Ethereum are actually doing quite dang well. It's pretty remarkable. So uh, that brings us to uh, a check of the markets. We are going to be going to a uh, Microsoft to boost its investment in chat GBT. Yeah, we've seen a lot of that. Um, this does bring us to a check of what's going on in the markets. Let's see what we have here. Chat GBT is down right now for uh, excess demand. Fascinating. Quick check here. We do have a course member live stream coming up before the opening bell. I'll be going there right after this. We'll be doing the opening bell together with course members. Do keep in mind that if you want to join those course member live streams for life, you could get in pretty inexpensively. I think for somewhere around 300 bucks, checking out on one of the courses linked down below. Get lifetime access to those. We have the biggest expiration of coupon codes coming this January 30th. If you want to bundle up, looking for any kind of special deals, email us at kevin at mekevin.com. But otherwise, check out that coupon code JET link down below. Futures market sitting up about a quarter of a percent on the Dow, 0.12% on the NASDAQ, 0.12% uh, on the S&P as well. Oil up still about 1%. Bonds rising nicely here, 3.53 on the 10-year. Let's go ahead and take a look at some uh, individual movers here. Uh, individual movers, we saw Wayfair earlier moving pretty heavily, still moving about 12%. Voozy about 10% shift tech, almost 8%. Got a lot of momentum movement here uh, in some of these stocks. We know uh, uh, 
Genius Brands was one of those momentum movers up somewhere around 300% uh, at, at, at one point was... Um, uh, actually, I'm not seeing that in this particular ticker symbol here, so I'll have to see. Maybe that was a different ticker. Maybe that was GNS. Let me see. Uh, it could have been the Genius Group here. Yep, there it is. Those are some pretty uh, insane moves here. Genius Group up uh, from from uh, somewhere around 50 cents to 3 bucks. currently up another 6% in pre-market. So always be careful. Uh, anytime you get a momentum mover, guess what happens? When the momentum goes away, the stock dies. We're starting to see some of that momentum decline at Bed Bath & Beyond. And this is something that I've warned of just a couple of weeks ago. I warned that, uh, well, actually during this momentum movement, so over the last couple of weeks, specifically last week, that as soon as this momentum dies, Bed Bath & Beyond is likely to continue its downtrend uh, and give up some of those massive gains. On Friday, we had an 11% decline in the stock. And as you can see, it's it doesn't take much. My seven-year-olds could tell you volume is plummeting on Bed Bath & Beyond. That is a red flag. In my opinion, the only way you continue to get that meme movement up is if you see volume move up, not down. Welcome, Masculine Mindset. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate having you. Tax strategies. Uh, what's a bird's favorite place to shop? Set it up, Stephen. What is it? <laughs> uh, what, the dead cat bounce? <laughs> is, is, is that where we're going with this? Oh, dear. Bird Bath and Beyond. Oh, man. It's a knee slapper. Okay, let's take a brief moment to also look at how five-year break-evens are moving. We'll see if we have another item to cover, and then we're going to go ahead and jump over to the course member live shortly. Let's see here. Five-year break-evens uh, still up today, sitting at th uh, 2.31 on the five-year break-even. Two-year break-even is sitting closer to 2%. There's a headline on Bloomberg equity market story changing quicker than TikTok. Yeah, <laughs> as we uh, as we see markets rise uh, with some new levels of hopium. Let's listen in here to Kramer talk about Elliot's man Elliot management stake uh, in Salesforce. Well, um, Peter felt very good report, but David, I think that when I look at what Elliot, who Elliot is, I'm not saying I know what Elliot's up to, but I wonder what they think that Mark is the right person to run the company at this point. Yeah, I, I don't know uh, how they view that. I think their hope, my guess is their hope is to have more of a conversation, figure it out. You know, uh, there's a massive to the business. There's a massive operational improvement plan that many believe needs to go into effect, even more so than the laughs that have taken place and the margin improvement they, that they have already identified or at least did in their investor day and a few other places not, not see, being seen as enough. Um, you know, perhaps a lack of trust in the company. And then, yeah, so it's both operate better, right. improve profitability, maybe move away from an M&A strategy that seems to take precedence over all else, and then really have a meaningful succession plan in place. Now, again, someone else familiar with one of the other activists telling me that's sort of, they're looking at a two-year time period under which, you know, Mark needs to find a successor, right. a real successor. Uh, I think that you'd say- Two-year time frame of cuts, cuts, cuts. I believe it. But before I say we have to believe that, we have to talk about something, in my opinion, actually quite entertaining. And then we'll probably head over to our course member live. But we've got to talk about the craziness of chat and GBT, what NVIDIA just pulled off with artificial intelligence, and why a lot of folks say one of the best investments in chat GBT could be what I'm about to talk about. So 
First, let's understand some of the crazy things that you could do with ChatGPT. And I think it's absolutely remarkable. It's so remarkable that a Wharton professor just put the system to the test, or literally his test. And a Wharton professor suggested that ChatGBT, the artificial chatbot, could actually outperform some of its students on uh, some of his students on an operations management course. He went as far as saying that ChatGBT probably scored about a B to B minus on his exam. And this is leading a lot of professors to suggest that our entire uh, education system is being challenged by artificial intelligence. And so this got me thinking a little bit, well, wouldn't teachers potentially, you know, write something like if you write in here, write an essay on uh, Abe Lincoln, right? Well, teachers might be pretty used to people using ChatGBT and end up exposing their students as using this, right? But then I got to thinking to myself, this thing is so smart. You could actually just manipulate the crap out of this to probably get a pretty unique essay every time on Abe Lincoln. Uh, and, and you could use it to do some pretty incredible things. In fact, I'll show you one of the remarkable things that it just did for me on a liability release. And uh, we'll, we'll go through an example. But let's let's try this for a moment. Write an essay on Abe Lincoln's uh, presidency, uh, change over time, and include spelling and grammatical errors. Let's actually spell it correctly, whatever. It'll, it'll figure it out. Uh, include spelling and grammatical uh, errors uh, and make it 500 words long. All right, Let, let's just play with that for a moment and, and we'll see what it does. But what's remarkable about this is a lot of investors are now looking at, uh, yeah, presidency. <laughs> Look at that. This is great. Puts a spelling error in for you. <laughs> this is great. Uh, this is actually really incredible. But anyway, uh, I mean, this could be basically be the backbone of your homework assignment, right? I, th I still think it's probably wise to, to uh, if you're using ChatGBT for coding uh, purposes, making lists, coding websites, which it can do phenomenally, it probably still is useful to have some kind of educational background into what you're trying to do. So you can not necessarily fact check it, but massage it the way you need it to work, right? But a lot of investors right now are wondering how can they get started investing in ChatGPT, especially at a time where Microsoft is looking at increasing their $1 billion stake to potentially $10 billion in ChatGPT to, to almost take a controlling stake in the company, potentially as high as 49% stake in the company. A lot of folks like Elon Musk are very nervous about this. Uh, in that, hey, you know, if ChatGBT is controlled by one enterprise, it could end up creating not only, well, substantial challenges to Google, which is fair, but also substantial challenges to what could be done with this artificial intelligence. Maybe this is something that should remain open source and it shouldn't actually be controlled by one entity. This is sort of the belief of someone like Elon Musk. But what's what's remarkable here is we just got an essay put together. Uh, for us. While I was talking, I just had a change over time essay written for me by ChatGBT. And if I were a student, I mean, I would never cheat. I'm just saying if I were a student who was inclined to, um, this is quite fascinating. In fact, look at this. If I throw it into a Word document, I just copy and pasted it over. Look, 
<laughs> it put in spelling errors. Presidency, compromise with a Z, uh, presidency over here. Uh, this is shocking. Uh, Lincoln's presidency was also marked by other uh, by other important change, such as the expansion of executive power and the growth of the federal government. Lincoln used his executive authority to take bold actions, such as suppressing the writ of habeas uh, corpus uh, and issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. He also oversaw the creation of new government agencies, such as the forerunner of the IRS. I mean, this is incredible. You know, another thing that you could do is, is watch this, write a release of liability for, uh, write a release of liability for a property management contract on 123 East Main Street, Ventura, California, between buyer Kevin and seller Walter, include, uh, I don't know, include a non-disparagement agreement and provide compensation of $5,000 from seller to buyer to be paid via Zelle, uh, I don't know, within three days. I don't know. What else? Uh, let's just hit enter on it. Okay. Like that's all I'm going to do. That's all I'm going to do is I'm going to write this <clears throat> and, and, and we'll see what it does. In the meantime, uh, we got to talk about this as a potential investment. Obviously, a lot of people are looking at ChatGBT and saying, okay, well, Microsoft wants to take a big stake in ChatGBT. And while Microsoft wants to take a big stake in ChatGBT, who is going to provide the processing power for ChatGBT? Because right now, just for example, this is just a demo right now. This is a demo of this software. And it's only smart to about the end of 2021. So it's not trained on new data, right? That's important. Like if you start asking this for financial advice, you're going to get stuff from like 2000 uh, at 21, which is stupid. So be careful, you know, what you use it for. But right now, the company is estimated to be spending about $100,000 a day at least according to a professor from the University of Maryland and their computer science department. He's estimating that ChatGPT is shelling out about $100,000 a day for this bot or about $3 million a month, which seems like a lot of money for a demo, but they're probably skyrocketing their valuation for this company with this demo. Because quite frankly, the demo is absolutely insane. You just saw me use it to write a backbone of an essay with spelling errors. Probably even grammatical errors because I asked it to. I just didn't. I didn't read the whole thing to check for it. But anyway, I mean that's that's kind of a way you could sort of trick potentially teachers or professors, right? Look at this again. While I was talking, and then I'm going to reveal what could be a big investment or how you could really expose yourself to the pricing power of ChatGPT or the companies that might have a lot of pricing power uh, with ChatGPT. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But look at this. All I wrote is write a liability release for a property management contract on 123 East Main Street between buyer, I don't know why I wrote property management, it should have been tenant, right? Whatever. Between buyer Kevin and seller Walter, include non-disparagement agreement and provide compensation of $5,000 from seller to buyer paid via Zelle within three days. Let's see what it wrote. We got our title here, release of liability and non-disparagement agreement known as agreement here forward. Uh, and entered into on the date of execution by the undersigned parties, buyer Kevin, here in your further buyer, and seller Walter, here further seller, in relation to the property located at 123 East Main Street, here further property. Release of liability. 
Buyer and seller hereby release and discharge each other from any claims, demands, actions, causes of action, suits, damages, liabilities, costs, and expenses of every kind in nature whatsoever, whether known or unknown, suspected or unsuspected. Damn, I couldn't even, like, that's impressive. I mean, I'm not an attorney, right? But still, this is incredible. Non-disparagement. Buyer seller agree not to make any negative or derogatory statements, whether written or oral, about each other uh, about, uh, uh, or the property to any third prop, uh, party, included but not in uh, included, to you know, future clients, customers, vendors. So I want to I want to increase this a little bit, okay? Uh, so so I want to I'm going to modify this a little bit. Let's let's see if it could do it. Um, <clears throat> for the non disparagement clause, uh, please also prevent. Uh, related parties or uh, people they may know from uh, disparaging and include social media. <clears throat> now, I, I don't know. I don't know what 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 it'll do with that. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But look at that. It's got the compensation in here, governing law, the uh, entire agreement uh, supersedes other agreements made severability clauses in here. Uh, the agreement may not be modified. This is insane. Oh, look at it. It's, it's, it's rewriting the whole thing with the modification that I made. This is actually very, very impressive. Uh, I mean, let's see if it could do the modification. Because again, I do think it's useful to have at least some kind of background here. Like, hey, look, seller and buyer agree not to make disparaging remarks. But what if, what if like, hey, friend, go talk SH9T about so-and-so because you found out about this, right? Well, that sort of inducement is something that you might want to cover. Uh, let's see what it does. Look at that. Buyer and seller, as well as their respective agents, employees, representatives, and any other related parties or people they may know. Dude, let's go. That is a really impressive. Again, it would be useful to have some kind of, of background in, in law to understand how to maybe manipulate this and and basically, you know, make it do stuff for you. Uh, like, for example, uh, I think maybe one of the things you should also include in this would be some kind of damage, right? Uh, now include a damages clause of $50,000 immediately due and payable to the other party uh, uh, via uh, a check mailed uh, to the other party within three business days for any damage or any violation of this agreement, uh, include a 7% interest penalty uh, annual uh, for any delay in providing this uh, damage, you know, payment. Okay, whatever. So we'll let that go for a moment. While that runs, and we'll come back to it, I want to show you something insane about where artificial intelligence is going. And then I want to talk to you about some investment ideas, okay? Some investment theses for these. And then we're going to go to the course member live stream, which of course you get lifetime access to if you join any of the programs on Building Your Wealth. The lowest entry point is about 300 bucks. You get bundle these as well, and you get lifetime access to all the future content. We've got that coupon expiring on the 30th of this month. So look at this. This is absolutely insane. So on the left, you have a real individual. It, and, and it is a real person who's being filmed by a camera. And now what NVIDIA is going to do is they are going to rebroadcast the same person, but making them look at the camera all the time. So let's say they're reading a piece of paper. Like I want you to look at me for a moment, okay? 
Let's say I have a piece of paper just right here off camera. Hey everyone, me Kevin here. Today we're going to talk about crypto or whatever, whatever, whatever. My eyes are obviously not looking at you like they're looking at you right now. I think that eye contact is really important. But you know, even if I look down here at my computer, you know I'm not making eye contact. Or like if I try to read something just below the camera, it still makes it seem like I'm not making perfect eye contact, right? So what is what did NVIDIA just come out with? Well, watch this. Absolutely insane. Okay, I'm hitting play here. Look at the guy's face on the right. He's making eye contact while reading something, not making eye contact. This is absolutely insane technology. And there's a reason I'm putting NVIDIA into this discussion. NVIDIA might have the most insane pricing power. And I hold an NVIDIA position, okay? I'm a big fan of PP goes up. Big fan of PP, okay? NVIDIA might, look at him, look at him, hold his iPhone. That's insane. NVIDIA might have substantial pricing power with compute when it comes to ChatGBT. In fact, Citibank and Bank of America agree. This is insane, man. Oh my gosh. This is going to help people do Zoom calls, even who have like eye deformities and stuff. Oh, 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 that's weird. <laughs> you can kind of see his eyeball glitch a little bit there. Uh, anyway, so... Uh, let me tell you about some estimates around ChatGBT. Uh, ChatGBT Citigroup now estimates that the rapid growth in ChatGBT could result in sales of three to eleven billion dollars for Nvidia over twelve months. That would be fifteen to forty percent more sales. That would then trickle down to companies like Taiwan Semiconductors, who has a 90%, 92% share of the advanced chip market, which is deemed to be anything, uh, I believe it's seven nanometers and below, could be five nanometers below. But anyway, they have a 92% share of the small chip, advanced chip market, Taiwan Semiconductors, for manufacturing. They are a powerhouse, power player, and so is NVIDIA. Bank of America agrees. Either way, ChatGBT is likely to push computing uh, requirements substantially, so it probably just rise the entire chips industry. I am so bullish on chips. I think chips is a, an area of massive pricing power. Uh, and now we just got a report here that Microsoft does plan to invest $10 billion into OpenAI over several years. Uh, so TBD in this. Now uh, let's go back. Let's see. Let's see if it included the damages provision in this release of liability agreement, non-disparagement. Oh, here it is. Oh my gosh! In the event of a violation of this provision, the offending party shall be liable to the non-offending party for a damage payment of fifty thousand dollars, immediately due and payable by a check mailed to the non-offending party within three count it three business days and a 7% annual interest penalty for any delay in providing this damage payment. Oh, look at how much I got done while talking to you. I could literally just copy and paste this and throw it into a DocuSign and we're done, baby. This is sick. Like the, the opportunities here. I mean, you, it's, it, it is so insane uh, that... Uh, I, I'm blown away. I, I'm going to just write something in that, uh, let's see here, is uh, uh, kind of a little bit more extreme. But, uh, oh, never mind. I got logged out. I was going to write in something like, hey, you know, can you design me a website? 
Uh, this is so in demand right now. Their, their engines keep going down. Uh, we know it can do that. Uh, it, it's very helpful to have some background in website coding so you can ask it to style properly or reformat things the way you want. But the amount of work that it could do for you, I would say this could probably eliminate right here, you know, and, and rumor is right now that they're going to end up charging like 50 bucks a month for a professional seat for this, which is, I think, a bargain. But in my opinion, you could probably cut out about 50% of the tedious work for programmers, maybe even more. Software developer, like the amount of deflation this actually creates is insane. And then, and, and I know that sounds wild. It's like, wait, what do you mean deflation? Like when you can do more with less people, you create deflation. You create more job layoffs. You create less pricing power for wages and more pricing power for things like NVIDIA or Microsoft or OpenAI, right? I mean, Taiwan Semiconductor. This is remarkable. I, I'm very blown away by this. Uh, and hopefully you appreciated some of these examples here. But uh, now it is time to uh, head to the course member live stream because we are about uh, five minutes away from the opening bell. Uh, let's see. I'm going to look at some of your comments here. Honestly, I would pay $1,000. Steve, you freaking nail it again. So Steve's a course member. He shows up every single day. He's a gold buff. I love this guy. He's a contrarian. I like contrarians, okay? I don't need more Kevins around. I like contrarians. This guy forces me to buy uranium. Uh, so, so I promised him I'd buy like a thousand bucks of uranium. Uh, anyway, so, so yesterday I filled out the chat GBT form. And it's like, what is the most you'd be willing to pay for chat GBT for your business? I literally put in $999 and here's Steve. I would honestly pay a thousand bucks for ChatGPT. Totally agree. Writing emails, dude. Oh my gosh. That's another thing. I could tell it. Uh, can you tell, can you write uh, a business? Right. Okay. Let, let, let's try this really quick. Okay. Uh, write a business apology agreement uh, or, or, or email while also saying that we cannot provide a refund, <laughs> you know, let's just have that go. But you're so right. It's so creepy. Let's see what happens here. Uh, millions of people could be more, more productive. Masculine mindset says buy the course below for priceless information, invest in yourself and learn from the dude. transparency. And on your side, the leverage is yours. Dude, masculine mindset. That was like an ad. Thank you. I, I do not pay him. I promise. <laughs> uh, that's really cool. Uh, do you think Apple earnings are going to be a disaster? I honestly think most earnings are going to be better than we expect. What do we got? We do apologize for the inconvenience you have experienced with our product slash service. We understand that you are expecting a different outcome and we apologize for falling short of your expectations. We'd like to inform you that unfortunately we are unable to provide a refund to your purchase. However, we would like to offer you a discount credit or alternative solution as a gesture of face. Oh, what? What? I didn't even say that. I didn't even say that. I just said, write a business apology email. And it is, it is so wise that it is realized the best thing to do in this situation is to divert the customer to potentially another benefit like a discount or credit or an alternative solution because we value their business and we appreciate their understanding and look forward to having the opportunity to serve them again. Oh, <laughs> mind-blowing. Absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing. Uh, very, very, very exciting. So, uh, wow. Thank you so much for watching. If you found this video helpful, please leave a positive comment down below. If you didn't find it helpful, leave a, a chat GBT complaint down below. I don't know. Uh, if uh, if you like these live streams and, and you want to stream with me in the mornings, 
Leave a positive comment down below. Let me know. Give me your thoughts. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you in the future. Goodbye.